Let's turn to God's word. We are in Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 27. Luke 9, 18 through 27. I encourage you to turn there. And we're going to be considering Jesus' call, his command, to take up your cross. As I prepared for this week, I felt uh, refocused by Jesus on what it means to be a disciple. And I hope that's your experience this morning. Um, And just to kind of all get us on the same page, before I read this text from Jesus, um, what is a disciple? This is fundamental to who we are. Jesus calls us his disciples. And I don't want to assume that we're all on the same page with that. Disciple basically means a student. But not just in the classroom. This is an all-of-life student. So people in Jesus' day, they would devote themselves to a rabbi, to a teacher, and they would follow him around devoting themselves to his teaching and his way of life. Uh, For you tradesmen out there, a disciple is an apprentice, but the apprenticeship doesn't end until you meet Jesus. And in fact, you keep growing in his likeness. For you social media heads out there, uh, a disciple is a follower, not a casual social media follower for entertainment, more like a follower at the Shaolin monk whatever. You go and devote your whole life to one person's way of life and teaching. So this is what a disciple is, an all-of-life student, an all-of-life apprentice, a follower of Jesus. And today, we're just going to ask these two questions. Who is Jesus, and how do we follow him? So hear God's word as I read from Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 18. While Jesus was praying in private, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, that one of the ancient prophets has come back. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. But Jesus strictly warned and instructed them to tell this to no one, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and that of the Father and the holy angels." Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for Jesus' help. King Jesus, would you send out your Holy Spirit to slow us down, to help us have ears to hear and strength to obey? None of us could take up your cross, King Jesus, apart from your Holy Spirit. So please send him. Help us to imitate him today. Amen. Consumeristic, comfortable Christianity is probably the biggest danger we face as American Christians. I am not a cultural commentator. I probably need to watch the news more. (laughs) But wherever this country is heading, uh, still you might have some resistance here and there Overall, even in New England, we face more indifference than resistance. And we are lulled into thinking that following Jesus is a nice addition 
to our lives. We have enough of Jesus to calm our guilty consciences, but we don't want him to take over. I just want to step back, do a little history lesson here. Um, For the first about 300 years of the church, Christianity was an outlawed religion. It was illegal under the Roman Empire to be a Christian. They were persecuted. Many were martyred in the Colosseums, torn up by lions. To be baptized into Christ, there's a parallel, was kind of like enlisting in the army today. You considered the cost. You realized in Rome in those first 300 years, for me to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit means that I'm giving away my time. I am giving away my preferences. I am no longer the boss of my own life, and I might even die for this Jesus man. It's still like that in many parts of the world, in North Africa, in Afghanistan, Iran, North Korea, China. People who are baptized into Christ, they count the cost of discipleship. This all changed when there was an emperor named Constantine who himself was convinced that Christ was Lord, and he was baptized around the 300s. And he put out this edict saying, this is the Edict of Milan, he's saying, Christianity is no longer illegal. In fact, no religion is illegal. You can worship however you please and whomever you please. Now, there's many good things that came with this. You know, churches started meeting, uh, acquiring land and not meeting their homes as much. Um, People could worship freely, and that's a gift for us today. Um, But with that, Christianity kind of became complacent and comfortable. People's faith started to get flabby. For some, people wanted to join the faith and be baptized for political power, social status, for wealth. They wanted to join Christianity for reasons apart from Christ. And there was a group of people, some of the earliest monks, men and women, who said, that is not the genuine faith that Jesus preached. And so they went out to the wilderness They fasted, they prayed, they took the Sermon on the Mount literally and gave everything they had. And they say, we want to take up the cross in a day of consumerism and complacency. Now, whether you choose to adopt that lifestyle or not, the same question they face is the one we face today. When we face indifference, when being baptized is not like enlisting, but it's more like getting a Sam's Club membership, how do we take up our cross and follow Jesus? So we're going to look at these two questions from our passage. Who is Jesus? And then how do we follow him? And the heart of Jesus' teaching is the Christian life is marked by daily death. This is what we have to accept from our Lord and Master. The Christian life is marked by daily death. So let's look at verses 18 through 21. Who is Jesus? It says that he was praying in private with his disciples who were with him. So going back a scene, Jesus just fed 5,000 people miraculously. After a whole day of healing, he and his disciples are exhausted. And now he pulls them away. He says, let's get some rest. And he's praying in the presence of his disciples. Luke, especially out of the four gospels, he points out Jesus' prayer life. If you could describe Jesus' earthly ministry in two words, it would be work and prayer. He poured himself out. And then he stepped away and he got poured into by the father and stepped out and poured out and so on and so on. And this was the pattern for the disciples. This is the pattern for us. 
our mission at ROG is fueled by restful prayer. And so he's praying with them. And I love this. He's, he's talking to the father and then he seamlessly just turns over and asks the disciples a question. He normalizes prayer. Prayer is vertical conversation with your father. Conversation is horizontal, talking to men and women, children. So he's praying and he says, who do the crowd say that I am? Whether you follow Jesus or not, you likely have an opinion and an answer to that question. Ever since Jesus' birth, he's been a dividing character. And he says, who do people say that I am? If you look at verse 19, they answered, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. He's a miracle-working prophet in the Old Testament. Still others that one of the ancient prophets has come back. The, the common denominator between John the Baptist, Elijah, and these prophets is people are saying you're a prophet. You have powerful words from God. In today's language, you're an influencer, Jesus. That's what the crowds are saying about you. Now, Jesus doesn't totally shut this down. This is not a wrong answer. In the next scene in the transfiguration, God the Father will open up heaven and say, this is my son. You should really listen to him. Listening to this prophet's words. This is not a wrong answer, but it's incomplete. So if you Google... Michael Jordan this morning. Uh, you can do it now if you want, but just come back after that. But if you Google MJ, so just think about it. Like sometimes I'm teaching, you know, first graders, kindergartners, they don't even know who MJ is, right? So they're hearing about MJ, they Google him. The first thing that will pop up about MJ on Google today, I don't know if it'll change tomorrow, is Michael Jordan is the chairperson of the Charlotte Hornets. Correct. But he also happens to be the greatest basketball player of all time. It's not a wrong answer, but it's incomplete. And maybe some of you are there right now. You think, Jesus is a good teacher. But this morning, Jesus is inviting you to see him as much more than that. So he presses in his disciples and he says, okay, if that's the crowd say who who I am, who do you say that I am? And Peter, I love it. He's like the self-designated spokesperson for the disciples. He says, God's Messiah, waiting for that pat on the back. And that is a right answer. He nailed it. Earlier in Jesus' nativity scene, the angels come to, to Mary and then to the shepherds. And they say, today in the city of David was born for you the Messiah, the Lord. He will be great. He will be called son of the most high. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. So the Messiah, it's a Hebrew word for anointing. So kings in the Old Testament at their coronation, they still do this in England. Uh, They did this with King Charles. They'll pour oil on your head as a sign that God has anointed you with blessing. And he has set you apart to lead his people. So Peter's basically saying, you're not just a prophet, Jesus. You're the king who's bringing God's reign. And Jesus' response is confusing He basically says, shh, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. Why does he do this? He goes on to say in verse 22, saying, this is the reason why you should be quiet. It is necessary that the son of man suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised on the third day. 
They're, they're wondering, are you really the Messiah? Are you the king who's going to overthrow the Roman rule? And he says, I am the king. But don't get it twisted. Before I reign, I will suffer at the hands of the elders and the priests. And I am going to die. Jesus was not only a prophet. You see, in the Old Testament, there was three main roles that were anointed. You had the prophet who was anointed with oil. You had the king who was anointed with oil. And you have the priest. Jesus is saying, I am a suffering king. In these disciples' minds, they may have thought of Isaiah 53. If we could pull that up here. Jesus is the priest. This was hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem and went to the cross. But Isaiah, under the power of the Holy Spirit, he prophesied that the Messiah king would do this. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. Continuing this prophecy about the coming Messiah. He was pierced because of our rebellion. Think of the cross. He was crushed because of our iniquities. Punished for our peace was on him. Punishment for our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So Jesus is a king, yes. But he's a suffering king who first is a priest who reconciles us to God. There's a tradition in the church. You find it in the early church and then kind of revived in the Reformation in the 15 and 1600s of thinking about Jesus in three roles as the prophet, priest, and king. We could pull this up. Jesus is the prophet. He speaks God's words to us and he enlightens our dark minds. He is the priest who dies to reconcile sinners to God and he lives to make intercession for us. That's what it says in Hebrews. Right now he's praying for his people for their sins of this morning, for last night. He's interceding before the Father. And he's the king. Jesus reigns over all things and lovingly guides and protects his people. So who is Jesus? He is the prophet, priest, king of God, coming to bring his reign through suffering in our place on the cross and resurrecting to establish his rule. Now, remember, disciples are students. They're followers. So probably the disciples are starting to panic a little bit. Let's look at the second question. How do we follow him? Disciples follow their rabbis, their teachers. Imagine the weight of the suffering that was dawning on his disciples. Jesus is setting his face to Jerusalem, not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow sin, death, and Satan on a cross. It's like a political campaign. This is probably the worst political campaign ever, if that's what you're going for. They're all sitting in the boardroom. You have the whiteboard up, and the disciples are getting excited. Jesus is drawing a crowd. He's becoming more famous. The polls are up, and they're saying, all right, what are we going to do? What's your vision, Jesus, for AD whenever? What are we going to do to establish your reign and up your polls? Are we going to storm Jerusalem? Are we going to kick out the Romans? And Jesus looks at them. And on the whiteboard, he puts up the most shocking symbol ever, a cross. He said, that's my vision. Jesus says 
in verse 23. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Here, Jesus lays out in plain terms what it means to follow him, and it starts with self-denial. There's a lot out there in like a certain sector of um, podcasts and YouTubers, influencers, who are pushing like self-discipline. I don't know if you're catching that, if we're in the same like sector of what we view, but like take cold baths in the morning. Don't hit snooze. You know, the rock is yelling at you like, get up. And I'm like, woo. And then I fail the next day. Uh, there's all the self, you know, ultra marathoners going the extra mile. And there's this kind of stoic self-denial that's being revived. And that's not necessarily bad if you have self-discipline. But one of the weaknesses of the stuff that's being pumped out now is this is self-denial for your own personal, mental, and physical benefits. And that's not bad. Like, if you want to get up and take a cold shower, like, more power to you. That's tough. Uh, But this is all kind of ending on the self. For a slimmer waistline, to run an ultra marathon, uh, to get a raise at work. So these aren't necessarily bad things, but this isn't the self-denial that Jesus is talking about. The self-denial that Jesus is talking about is self-denial for the other. Self-denial for the sake of his fame and glory and self-denial for the good of other people. And this self-denial, like I said earlier, is summed up in one image, a cross. If I said a cross in polite company during Jesus' day, there would probably be gasps in this room. We've kind of domesticated the cross. People wear it on their chains. Hey, shout out to you if you're wearing a chain. I'm not hating on that. Bringing glory to the cross. But we put it on our jewelry. I think it's still in to have those like hanging Justin Bieber cross earrings. We just see it on churches. We see it wherever we go. We've domesticated the cross. But for these first century Jews, the Roman cross was a shock. You wouldn't mention it at the dinner table. It would be like saying, it would be like having an electric chair medallion. You know, the huge flavor flavor thing, just an electric chair hanging on your neck. Or an electric chair hanging here. Because the cross was a torture instrument for criminals. And to add to their shame, it would be public for everyone to see, making an example of them saying, don't be like this treasonous person, or you'll end up here. And to even add to the shame, the two beams of the cross, the cross beam would be carried by the one who was condemned. We see this in Jesus' story as he's carrying, and he's too weak to carry his cross beam. So Jesus is saying, Disciples, do you know what self-denial looks like? It looks like carrying your crossbeam with me and for my sake. We're imitators of Christ. Jesus' cross-bearing takes away our sin. Our suffering will never take away our sin or other people's sin, but we imitate him in that we get low to raise others up. We suffer to bring healing and help to other people. Jesus is leading this upside down kingdom. And he goes on. He says, for whoever, verse 24, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? In Jesus' kingdom, in a world gone crazy, he flips everything upside down. Or you can think about it as right side up. His kingdom is countercultural. The way up is down. The way to get is to give. The way to gain is to lose. And the way to honor 
is through embracing shame for the name of Jesus. He later says, if you're ashamed of me now, I'll be ashamed when I return in all my glory. So Jesus is leading this upside down kingdom. And he says, those who lose their lives because of me will save it. This is the cost of discipleship. We have to count the losses that we are going to embrace as Christians. There's a pastor, editor, author I just got put onto this week, Brett McCracken. And he put it so succinctly. I'm just going to take what he has. Uh, you can check out his name and article online. But he draws out five losses that believers will likely uh, have in their life following Jesus. We could pull this up. Brett says, you will experience the loss of being your own boss. That's hard for Americans, even harder for New Hampshireites. You will have a loss of consumer religion. You can't just show up to take but to give. You'll have a loss of pride. You'll have a loss of power and coolness and cultural respectability. This is a huge challenge increasingly at work, on playgrounds, at schools, especially for you younger people. There's a temptation to be ashamed that I'm a Christian or that I follow Jesus. You'll lose health and wealth. Our wallets will be lighter from following Jesus. Our backs may be tighter from staying up with people who are suffering and praying with them, caring for them. And we may endure verbal and physical harm. So these are a beautiful way of putting something, these, these losses that we might experience in following Jesus. Jesus died on a cross. There's loss, but he says, you'll also save it. You'll find life. If you give these things to me, you'll find something in return. Jesus' own pattern was through the cross, but he didn't stay in the grave. There was glory afterwards. C.S. Lewis says this, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. So count the cost, bear the cross, but look to the gain that we have. If we lose being our own boss, we gain a new and better boss, Jesus himself, who is the king of kings. He's smarter than you. He's stronger than you. He's wiser and more loving than you. If we have the loss of consumer religion, we have the joy of being useful in God's kingdom. The psalmist would say, it's more exciting for me to be an usher at the temple at God's place than to be partying up with people, the wicked in the tents. That's the joy of service. The Holy Spirit has given you gifts, not not to hold to yourself, but to be spent for other people's benefit. If we lose pride and our ego, we gain humility and peace. Self-forgetfulness. I think Ben put me onto this. There's a beautiful Tim Keller little booklet. The, something like the beauty of self-forgetfulness. Instead of pride, humility and peace. With the loss of power and coolness and cultural respectability, we gain a new family in the church. More brothers and sisters than we could ever imagine. And a new father. I love how the psalmist puts it. David says this. 
David says, even if my mother and father forsake me, you take me in God. Imagine how precious that is to Muslim converts to Christ when their parents forsake them and wish them dead. And they're saying, even if my mother and father forsake me, you take me in, O Christ. And if we suffer loss of health and wealth, we have a particular fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings, as Paul talks about in Philippians. And we look for the world to come where health and wealth in Christ will be restored and Jesus will be our greatest treasure. So count the cost, but also consider gain. What does it look like for us practically to take up the cross? And notice he says, take up your cross daily. This is a daily ritual, a habit. How do we live this out as the church in 2023, where there's a bit more and more resistance to the church, but by and large, our neighbors just don't care, you know, and we're tempted towards comfort and consumerism. How do we take up our cross Well, first, we consider Jesus the ultimate servant. That's the starting place. We look and behold Jesus on the cross. Philippians 2 says it like this. It's a mindset. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus is the eternal son of God. And when he came down, he didn't empty himself of being God, but he emptied himself of all the rights that come with being God. And he wrapped a towel around his waist and he washed his disciples dirty feet. And he got even lower. He went and carried his cross beam to the cross and was crucified for us the most humiliating death, the righteous for the unrighteous. And we are called to have the mindset of Jesus. How do we do this? We could pull up the slide here. I heard this practice, I think it was from one of you, uh, maybe a couple of years ago, of starting your day just simply on your knees, giving your day to the Lord. That's a biblical practice. We don't just know what Paul prayed and the apostles prayed, but how they prayed. So Paul, when he he was a prisoner for Jesus when he was writing a lot of his letters, he's in a uh, prison in Rome, and he says, I get on my knees, and I raise my hands, and I pray for you. Hello over there. This is how Paul was praying for people. This is a helpless position of a servant. I commend this to you. Begin your day by getting on your knees, And saying, Jesus, you are the king. You are the boss of my life. Everything that comes to me today comes through your hands. Help me to receive it. So surrender your day to Jesus. We talked about adopting the mindset of Christ. One way I've been trying to do that practically recently is whenever I'm transitioning from place to place, coming home from work, going to a wedding, coming here, offering up a simple prayer. Lord, I want to serve like you. Give me your mindset. Lord, I want to serve like you. Give me your mindset. As I enter this new space with these people, help me to have your mindset that considers their needs over mine. It's far more important than mine. Another option is find a place to serve. That could be formally here at River of Grace. And if you want to know how to serve, you could ask me or one of the other elders. We'd love to point you to an area you can serve. But it doesn't have to be formal. It could be different ways in your family or your community. Fourth, 
Seek out menial tasks. I don't know when the last time you cleaned a toilet was, but maybe it's time. Some of you are like, I clean that joker every week. <laughs> so maybe we find a different menial task for, for a break. But if you haven't cleaned a toilet in a while, it is amazingly humble. Uh, a pastor and hero of mine, one of his jobs as he was working a different job in pastoring, he was a janitor at a school. He said it was one of the most humbling things to clean up kids' crap and then go and preach about his need for Jesus. Find a menial task to do, especially for those of you who employ other people, bosses in here. Look for ways to get low and to serve your employees. Kind of shock them with how low you're getting in serving them. Uh, fifth, and this is what I'm drawing from the, the men and women, uh, the desert fathers and mothers. They took the Lord, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and they wanted to live it out. Some of them individually, some of them in community, but they gave themselves to generosity fasting and prayer and solitude generosity fasting and prayer and we need this more than ever to get away with jesus maybe take one day a year maybe you need you know one day every other month to get alone with jesus to fast to feed on his word to sing some songs to ask for his direction in your life and oftentimes these monks get portrayed as like just being out in the wilderness places, but they would come in with a fresh sense of God's presence to their communities and be a light and revive the faith of their brothers and sisters. And finally, take a second to consider your losses, your particular losses in following Jesus. This could be actual decisions you've made that have cost you, or this could be looking forward and saying, if I want to follow Jesus as he says I should, what losses am I going to take? And go beyond those losses, go beyond the cross to look at the gain. You will gain Jesus, knowing him in the suffering and one day knowing him in glory. Jesus ends this teaching on discipleship in verse 27. He says, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This kind of confuses readers of the Bible. What are they talking about? They're thinking about like Jesus' return. As far as I know, none of the men sitting there with Jesus are still alive, like Elvis or Tupac, like just walking around and there's myths. They're dead. Many of them died bloody deaths for Jesus. So what does Jesus mean? My best attempt at this is the next day, uh, Peter, I think Peter, James, and John, they go up on a mountain and they see for a moment the glory of Jesus shining from the mountain as he's standing with Moses and Elijah. And then God's voice says, this is my son, listen to him. And then beyond that, these same men would see Jesus crucified and three days later raised from the grave and have a fish fry for them. He's cooking fish for them on the beach. And he's saying, I defeated death, sin, and Satan. And then 40 days later, they would see the same Jesus rise up on the clouds and say, get to work, get after the mission. My Holy Spirit's coming. I'm coming back for you. These men saw with their own eyes the glory of God. And why does Jesus mention it here? Because today's sermon was hard. It worked me. God was humbling me. Do I really take up my cross for him? And he's meeting that hardness of the cost of discipleship with the promise and the hope of glory. Endure your cross patiently, knowing that on the other side, 
as you endure, you will see Jesus in his kingdom. You will see him face to face. I don't know if he's still in the business of fish fries, but there will be a banquet and it is glorious. I was at a wedding banquet yesterday. My heart was just getting stoked for the kingdom of God. People of all different skin tones and languages and music styles and basketball fandom gathering around the table of Jesus and worshiping him in his renewed world. So church, let's take up our crosses and know, be convinced that this Christian life that we signed up for in baptism is going to be marked with daily death. But let's also anticipate resurrection.